Good evening. Um, I want to tell you about somebody called Ralph um, Nelson Elliott. Um, he was a, a Los Angeles accountant in the 1930s. And uh, while he was uh, recuperating in, um, in hospital, having suffered a, a long illness, um, he had the time to study um, why stock exchanges um, went up and down. Um, and uh, he particularly was interested because it was the 1930s and the stock exchange had just plunged um, 90% in its value, causing um, what, was what we know as the Great Depression. And so he studied these and he discovered through analysis that there were actually re- repetitive patterns that happen um, in these markets. And um, he found that stock exchanges move with some level of consistency around cycles. And he began to realize that these cycles don't originate, actually, in financial markets, but are the product of humans that drive them. Elliot observed that even human emotions are rhythmical um, and have a pattern to them, and they move in waves of a definite number and direction and occurs in all human forms of activity Uh, whether it is business and markets, or whether it's politics or the pursuit of pleasure. And he called them, they're known as Elliot's Waves. And um, there were sort of more modern exponents of the theory of of Elliot's Wave, believe that these wave patterns are an organizing principle of social behavior. It's quite interesting. You can see how I've got into it, can't you, over the, the last day or so. An organizing principle for social behavior, um, ranging from all sorts of things, from the way that newspaper um, uh, sales to the future of, polit- of political leaders. We should definitely not go there at the moment. But they say you can even gauge, which I, this is what I read, that you can even, even engage, you can even gauge society's emotional temperature where society is, by the clothing people wear. It's fascinating. For example, if you look at the average length of hemlines as fashions change and plot it against stock exchange, there's a striking correlation that as stock exchanges faithfully rise and fall, so do hemline lengths. You think I'm kidding, but you can read about this theory. Google it, Elliot's Waves. And so the explanation is that when people feel bold, empowered, and adventurous, they buy stocks and they wear bolder, some might say shorter, hemlines. And when they feel threatened, weak, or conservative, they do the opposite. And the mood is very pervasive. And almost... What happens is, what they say is everybody flows along on these patterns. Everyone gets swept along with the the trend and the the pattern. And you're thinking, Eddie, what's this got to do um, with the Sermon on the Mount uh, or even the Beatitudes? Well, the question for us this evening as we begin this new series is when was the last time that you actually tried to buck the trend and the prevailing patterns and social norms? And and maybe you're not even aware that you are being swept along on those Elliot's waves. 
really swam against the tide? Or are we just really following the society's constructed trends in our particular time and place? I mean, we all like to feel, don't we, that we're actually, we like to feel we're independent and making independent decisions, making our way in life. But if Eliot is in any way right, and I think he's got something here that is true, if he's anywhere right, then we may just actually all be being swept along on the waves of the world um, as they come and go. And probably half the time don't even realize it. Now, Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount He's asking us to go against the waves, to do the exact opposite, to swim against the tide. That's, in fact, what the Sermon on the Mount is all about and what the Beatitudes are about, going against the prevailing trends of this world. He's telling the disciples, his followers, to live radically, radically different lies from the patterns of this world, to be counter-cultural, counter-cultural, to avoid being swept along. God, our Father, we pray as we begin this series that you'll help us to understand what this means, and to not get drift along with the pattern of the world, but be to be counter-cultural. Help us to understand your words over these weeks and months to come, that we may live for you, be your people, be your kingdom people. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please do keep your Bible open at page 968 um, at the Beatitudes. And um, the way to to start thinking about the Beatitudes and, and the Sermon on the Mount is to think about the kingdom for a moment. It can be a bit of a, how do we understand what is Jesus talking about when he talks about the kingdom? He spoke about it a lot. He spoke it in many different ways. Um, but what does he mean? He's not, it's not just about entering the kingdom, as if that was an end in itself, just getting over the line into the kingdom somehow. It actually wants to tell us what it's like to live in it, because actually that's the purpose of turning to Christ, is to live in this kingdom. Um, so it's not just a holding place to go somewhere else. This is it. This is the kingdom that is to come and has come. So what is it? Well, I think the best way to illustrate it is like this. Think about anyone who comes into power, some kind of power. Now, it could be a king. It could be a prime minister, dare I say it. Um, It could be a CEO. It could be a head teacher, something like that. Now, when anyone comes into, into some kind of power, that power has expressed itself through a kind of new administration, We often hear that, the new administration. Uh, And that, of course, means what? Well, it means a new set of priorities. It means a new set of values. It means a new strategy. It means all sorts of new policies and procedures and a new way uh, of being. And if those are good and if they're wise, what do we say? We talk about our quality of life being improved. We talk about our well-being being increased. Now, Jesus Christ is the king, okay? He's the new king. He's the new loving power who comes with authority of heaven, and his power is expressed through his new administration, his new kingdom. Um, 
And guess what? That new administration comes with new policies and procedures. I'm just trying to give you a way to understand it, new ways of uh, strategy for life, a way of living. And this transformation that it brings is, of course, far, far more important and greater than just improving our quality of life and building our, our well-being. It's transforming everything. And it goes far deeper than we can possibly imagine. Now, when Jesus comes into power over us, um, his desire is for this total transformation in every compartment and part of our lives. It's not, there's no little place in our lives that is somehow sacrosanct, like our little wills or something that we might say. Like, like we might say, oh, I have free will. Ah, do we? Uh, and, of course, when, that, when we come into this new kingdom, this new administration, it can be really disorientating. It can feel like, oh, golly, what is this like? Um, it can feel a bit like the first day of school um, and, and what that felt like. It can feel like that. The Sermon on the Mount is so far-reaching. It reaches every area of our marriages, our relationships, our enemies, judging others, money, etc. And we're going to see all these different things being taught by Jesus and transformed. And the Beatitudes must be understood in that context. And they kind of act like an introduction and a summary for us as we begin. And I realized as I started this, I realized I could, it, we could just do a sermon series on each of the Beatitudes, but you'll be thankful we're not going to go through in that detail. Now, the Beatitudes, at first glance, they can look a bit opaque, can't they? They can look a bit sort of proverbial in the sense that I'm not sure quite how to get my head around these, these statements. Um, they seem very beautiful. Of course they are very beautiful. Um, they can feel like wise saying about certain kinds of people. You know, the, there's the poor people, there's the mourners, and there's the meek and the, the merciful, and there's the different groups. It can seem like that at first glance. And looks like lots of groups of people, interesting people, and all these have little sayings about them, but that's not how to read them. It really isn't the way to look at them. Like you've got to work out whether I'm the mourners or the, I'm, the mer- I'm merciful or I'm a peacemaker. In fact, if you do that, you'll get really confused because, like verse 5 and 6, blessed are the meek, they inherit the earth, and verse 6, the pure in heart, they will see God. So is that only the pure in heart see God and the meek don't see see, uh, God? And you get into all that kind of... of, It just will confuse you. So no, the, the way to understand the Beatitudes is to really look at the beginning and the end and both have the same beginning and end and that's really helpful for us. So verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 9, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the same thing. And Jesus, particularly in Matthew, uses kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God as interchangeable, saying the same thing. He's talking about the kingdom. Now, there are eight or nine, depending on how you read um, the ninth. Some people read the ninth, Beatitude is really just an extension of the eighth one. 
But what, we can, what I can say is they're not categorically different kinds of people. We're not talking about that different people groups. No. They are all qualities, qualities and characteristics of people who are in the kingdom. So if you're a Christian, but you trust in Jesus, these are the characteristics of people, kingdom people. They're all characteristics of one group of people. And Jesus is describing for us very vividly what it looks like for a person to come into the kingdom and live in the kingdom. The first four, and he has ordered them, the first four tell us how somebody enters the kingdom, um, what is common to all Christians, that as they come to faith, you enter the kingdom because you're poor in spirit, because you mourn, and because you are meek, and you see your hunger and thirst, your need for righteousness. They're those characteristics of entering. Then, then the last four um, talk about the new transformation that comes about because you are in the kingdom of God. And you can see the language slightly changes as well between four and five. So, for example, blessed are the merciful, those who have been shown mercy because you've been shown mercy by grace and by God's love. You now become a merciful person. Um, blessed are the poor in heart. Heart isn't here just, it's about the inner being. The center of your being is now totally transformed and reorientated. So what comes out of you is, is about uh, um, a transformation. Uh, and then blessed are the, pers- the peacemakers, because you have peace with God. You now show peace and desire peace between people and between others. Now, those become, these um, Beatitudes then for become like a set of goals, don't they? And you live, you live it despite what verse 10 says, the persecution which will come. You see, everything has changed if you are living in the kingdom. A whole new kingdom, a whole new administration, a whole new set of values, a whole new way of looking at life, a strategy of being in God's kingdom. And Jesus gives us this here, a whole new direction. First of all, tell you how you enter the kingdom. The second four tell you uh, how to live out being a transformed person in the kingdom. Now let me just go through them very, very briefly in the time that we have, one to eight. So you're ready. I go as quickly as can. We've, some we can will go quite quickly. So the first one, if you're poor in spirit, you understand your problems are way before you. This is about poverty of spirit. The answer to life cannot be found within by trying to be this or be that or be good or trying to find your identity. Spiritually, we are bankrupt. That's what this is, poor in spirit. And therefore, it's the beginning of understanding how we enter the kingdom of God. Second one, you then realize the problem in your life has three letters. Blessed are those who mourn. And, and um, uh, Victoria showed us that at the beginning with our confession. What are we mourning over? We're mourning over our sin. The problem has a name. 
It devastates you because by nature you begin to understand that you are sinful. And, and because it devastates you, you mourn it. You grieve it. The fact that you can't live the way that you ought to live. That you have flaws and failures. And it grieves you heavily. And I don't know, have you ever done that? Have you ever sensed the depth of that in your life? The third one then takes us Um, You go beyond just mourning. You don't just stay in mourning. You become a meek person. You don't recognize, just recognize your sin, but you recognize the problem is you, me. Um, I always remember the story about um, G.K. Chesterton that he was wrote at the between the 19th and 20th century. And uh, the Times newspaper asked for people to write in to answer the question, what is the problem of the universe? They just asked people, can you write in, what's the problem with the universe? And G.K. Chesterton, famous um, writer and journalist, wrote in, and he wrote one line, and he said, Dear Sir, I am your sincerely G.K. Chesterton. That's the answer, isn't it? And you see, the thing about meekness is to recognize that problem. And meekness of heart is about recognizing that you're not only poor in spirit and mourning over it, it's actually crucially to admit it. And sometimes admitting it is the hardest thing. I am, that's the problem. The fourth beatitude then comes... Once we have done these, once we've been through the first three, then what do we come to? We come to the search, don't we? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. Entering the kingdom of God starts with acknowledgement of who we are, and then it's followed by the search, that kind of deep longing that many of us go through for answers to why we are the way we are. And so to be right with God, because actually that's the desire. Righteousness is to be right before God. And this then gets, I think, to the heart of of, uh, of the Bible. It gets the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. It gets to the heart of the Gospel. Right here in the middle, it's interesting it's in the middle of the Beatitudes as Jesus speaks of them. Um, how do we get right with God? Hunger and search, searching and thirsting for righteousness. We need, don't we? We need a perfect record. We need a perfect record, but we don't have a perfect record. We need a perfect life, but we don't have a perfect life. The one thing in the first three Beatitudes we've discovered is we don't have any of this. And so comes through faith to the realization that the fourth beatitude is actually something like this. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after somebody else's righteousness, not their own. And you know who I'm talking about. Hunger and thirst, thirsty people know they have it, they need to receive it, it's a gift. Saying, I need a perfect record from somewhere else. It's not from me. I can find it only in Jesus Christ. That's it, isn't it? His death, his life, and it comes to you as a gift. 
You just simply need to receive it. So what does it mean to hunger and thirst after righteousness? Well, it means just simply to cry out to God, isn't it? Simply crying out to him and saying, Father, I, I need you. I, I give up trying to earn my righteousness. I give up trying to clean my own life up. I just simply receive you by faith as my saviour, as my Lord. Now let's pause there. That's the first four, isn't it? That's the how we come into the kingdom of God, isn't it? Let's pause. We've, we imagine um, reading the Beatitudes a bit like climbing a mountain, perhaps, and we've reached the pinnacle. You're now at the top of the mountain, and um, you take the moment to, to look back, like you do when you're perhaps on a, a hike or something, and you rest for a while, and you take in the view, and you look back, and you see where we've come. We've come through the poverty of spirits. We've come through the tracking through the, the morning, the mud of scrambling through meekness to the hunger and thirst for righteousness, his righteousness, Jesus Christ's, that's given to us freely. And we rest there. And it's really important to rest there before you go on. Because what will happen is if you, if you don't rest there, you'll so easily start to think that living out being in the kingdom is the way that you get to the top of the mountain. Actually, it isn't. Simply through faith in Christ. So now we turn and we look ahead as we pause. And and what do we see? We see where we are going. And we see ahead of us a changed life. Being a follower of Jesus is, is a changed life, transformed life. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted because of righteousness. But this can't happen without coming up the mountain and resting at the top. If you've entered the kingdom of God through the first four, then the next four sum up the completely topsy-turvy kingdom that we have. Number five, all your relationships, in effect, will be transformed because you become a merciful person. It's challenging stuff because God has shown you and me mercy, hasn't he? Because he has not given us what we deserve, we now need to show mercy to others. And that's really hard, isn't it? Because often we don't want to show people mercy. But because Jesus has shown us mercy and not given us what we deserve, which is actually death, he's given us life, now we need to show mercy to others. Hugely challenging. And you'll see that panned out in the Sermon on the Mount as we move forward. Number six, your heart will be transformed. Blessed are the pure in heart. What is the heart? It's the center of your being. It's not about emotions per se. It's not that it's less than that. But the the heart is the center of your your being. Uh, And what comes out of you. So so in a sense, it's, it's about a change in your in your um, thoughts. It's a change in your kind of inclinations um, to life, Um, your hopes, your dreams, your desires, your goals, your expectations are all now changed from the inside out. And we see that expressed in lots of ways that Jesus says. The seventh beatitude, and your whole direction of life will be transformed because you will have a purpose 
now and a mission in life. As I say, coming into the kingdom of God is just not to sit around and play harps and think of nice things. It's actually to have a mission in life, wherever that might be, and it's a peacemaker. So when all is falling apart around you, when all is falling apart in your office, when all is falling apart in our nation, when all is falling apart in the world, in your own life, or in your friend's life, you can know this peace that passes all understanding. We say that so often, but we don't realize the depth of what that means. A peace that comes through knowing Christ, because Christ has given us his peace. We're no longer at war with God. We're reconciled to him, and therefore we're reconciled to to each other. Huge, profound implications, doesn't it, for our enemies, for those that we find difficult to love. And then number eight. And that means you can withstand anything the world may throw at you. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. You see, when we live this kingdom way, um, we realize that actually opposition and difficulty is inevitable to some degree or another. And it'll be different here than it will be in some other countries and places. But this final beatitude acts, I think, like a kind of litmus test for the others. Because if you're living out this life in the kingdom, this is, this is how you will know. This is how you and I will actually know that we're living it out. Um, if you live a countercultural life, um, radically different from the Eliot ways that prevail in the world around us. It will cost us. We will face ridicule and laughter and scorn. What for? Because of the values and because of our policies and the procedures of the kingdom and of the administration, isn't it? Um, whether that's you know, to do with things like marriage and, and sexuality or, or whether that's to do with loving our enemies or whether that's to do with handling money. It'll be, that will all be unpacked in the next few chapters. You see, the true disciple of Christ fixes his or her eyes on the kingdom. We just said it in our prayer. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Not mine. Not the, the world's, but your kingdom come. The kingdom God's administration, which is often at odds with what appears in the world, the world's strategy. And they are kingdom people, I suppose, are a bit like topsy-turvy people. Um, As I was thinking about that sort of topsy-turvy, upside-down living, countercultural living that's completely different to the world, I was reminded of... um, through the Looking Glass, Lewis Carroll. I don't know if you like Lewis Carroll's. I do particularly like it, and because I get ki- I've got kids, I get to do it again. Um, and um, in the, the Looking Glass, Alice enters another world. Enters another world. Sound familiar? Um, and whose eccentric inhabitants seem to be chess pieces. It's a world in, that she recognises in some ways similar but it's different. Um, 
she has conversations at one point with the white queen and it goes like this I don't understand you said Alice to the queen it's dreadfully confusing that's the effect of living backwards the queen said kindly it always makes one a little giddy at first living backwards Alice repeated to great astonishment I've never heard of such a thing. Alice is struggling to come to terms with living backwards. Now, if you're a Christian, if you're here tonight and you've put your trust in the Lord Jesus as as your Lord and Saviour, and and if that's quite new to you particularly, it's often a struggle, isn't it, to come to terms with living backwards in a, in a counter-cultural way to the world around us. But as the White Queen quite rightly says, it always makes one a little giddy at first. It takes time sometimes to understand being in the kingdom and what that means. What does it mean being in the kingdom and being under God's rule and under his administration? It takes time. And thankfully we have a wonderful saviour who gives us time to get used to it. And help us and walk with us in it. And comfort us in it. So we too will find, or maybe you are finding, it a little giddy experience at first. We think to ourselves at times, and maybe as we read the Sermon on the Mount, that we might think to ourselves, gosh, the kingdom of God... He really wants me to to be like that or to live like this? And that's going to make us feel giddy because it's not like the world around us. Because the values and the policies and the principles are different of the kingdom. It can be very disorientating. But... As we step into that kingdom, as we live out his administration, what we'll actually find is is the very best way to live. Let's pray. God our Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. We pray, Father, that you'll help us in this series to understand what it means to, to live backwards, to go against the trend. Um, Father, we pray that you'll help us um, to understand what it means to enter the kingdom and to live in the kingdom, to be transformed in every area of our life. I pray that for for many of us, we'd be open to that fact. Even if we find that a challenging thought. Give us hearts that are open to your kingdom ways. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.